This is our last study in the book of Revelation, folks. Okay, who knows what's next, huh? You don't. All right, verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The final words of the final book of the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, as we have this final study this morning, we ask you to make it special. Just open our hearts and minds, open our spiritual eyes and ears to the truth. Lord, just continue that process of equipping us, training us, preparing us for what lies ahead. Lord, and not just the, the darkness of this world, we're already looking beyond that into eternity. Lord, first of all, when we come back with you to rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years, and then as we move into eternity, and finally to our uh, eternal destination in the new Jerusalem, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, we ask you to bless this time in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The Spirit and the Bride say come. So this is actually, folks, the final invitation for salvation given in the Bible. The Holy Spirit and the Bride of Christ, that's us, joining together in issuing this invitation to come while there's still time. There is still time. And I talked about that. I believe the greatest revival in human history will be right after the rapture of the church. Before the wrath of God is revealed, and it's too late. The Holy Spirit plays the key role in the salvation of any lost soul. First of all, we're told that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus talking, by the way. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking to the disciples, the apostles-to-be, about his soon departure. This is right before his death and resurrection. It's to your advantage that I go away. They weren't happy when he began to tell them, I've got to go where, you, where I'm going. You can't follow. I go to prepare a place for you and so forth. But it's to your advantage that I go, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, that's the Greek word, paracletus, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart... I will send him to you. And when he has come, what will he do? He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit, it produces what the Bible calls a godly sorrow. There's more than one kind of sorrow. I think we all know that. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance... The very first words out of John the Baptist's mouth when he went public 
And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he went public, what were they? Very first word, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Without conviction from the Holy Spirit, man is unable to repent. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. It's a godly sorrow, it's a good sorrow because it brings you to repentance and ultimately to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Have you seen all the sorrow being expressed by the pro-choice people over the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade? Ranting, raving, screaming, rioting, getting violent, getting physical. But that kind of sorrow, their sorrow over the fact they may not be able to kill our babies anymore, that sorrow leads to death, not to life. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. You remember the story of Esau. Jacob was the usurper, the heel catcher. They were twins. Esau came out first, but Jacob came out holding on to his heel. He was trying to fight his way and be the first one to get out because the firstborn son received a double portion of the inheritance. So Jacob cooked up a plan. He knew that his brother Esau was a very carnal, very fleshly man, so he made his favorite stew or soup, and he got Esau, believe it or not. Esau comes in, he's starving to death. You ever feel that way? You come, I gotta, I gotta have something to eat. You're just grabbing whatever you can get, right? Especially if you have low blood sugar. So Esau comes in from out in the field. He's starving. Jacob's there with his favorite soup, stew. And he gets Esau to trade his birthright for that bowl of soup. What an idiot. What are you going to do? So in Hebrews 12, 17, it says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. That was not a godly sorrow. Esau was in anguish because he knew how stupid he was, that he had given up his birthright for a bowl of soup. But he never repented for the sin in doing that. He was only sorrowful because of what he lost. You see the difference? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So that people can, by the Spirit of God, experience a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. See, there is a sorrow that's a result of getting caught, right? You're sorrowful, not because you did it, but because you got caught. That's not godly sorrow. That doesn't lead to repentance and salvation. So the second thing the Holy Spirit does here. He brings us to a place of confession. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. That's kind of a dead giveaway, isn't it? Somebody's cursing the name of Jesus, mocking him. That obviously does not come from the Holy Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit does that work in our lives where he brings us under conviction. 
Conviction leads to confession, and confession means that we agree with God. Prior to that, we're always trying to rationalize our sins, aren't we? Justify them. Well, it was just a little white lie. Yeah, it was only a pencil that I took, you know. We, we try to justify, rationalize, well, yeah, I did do some bad things, but not like that guy or that gal, right? But when the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction into our hearts, then we confess. We admit, God, you're right. Confession means to agree with God. If you're in denial of your sin, you're, you're not agreeing with God. You're in disagreement with God. We talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit not too long ago where you call the Holy Spirit a liar. The Holy Spirit says you're a sinner, and you say, no, I'm not. I'm not such a bad person. Go pick on somebody your own size. So confession means to agree with God. When we come into agreement with the truth being spoken to us by the Holy Spirit, then we cannot help but acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Right? Romans 10.8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, writes Paul. That. Here's the word of faith that Paul preaches. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, I've told you so many times, that was the very focal point of the message of the apostles. Not just Jesus as a good guy, a good teacher, healed the sick, raised the dead, that he himself rose from the dead, never to die again. That was at the heart of their message. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. So that's the Holy Spirit's work in bringing people to Christ. He also, of course, works in us, both the will and to do according to God's good pleasure to enable us, to empower us, to serve God, to follow God, to activate those spiritual gifts that God has placed within us. He's the comforter, the counselor, the one who comes alongside. He comes upon us, he lives in us, and he walks alongside of us. But notice the invitation here is from the Spirit and the Bride. That's us, the Bride of Christ. And so we have a part in all of this as well. The first aspect of our part, working in conjunction with the Spirit of God, is called proclamation, proclaiming, Acts 1.8. Jesus tells the apostles just prior to his departure, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and you shall be witnesses to me. So what's God's purpose in empowering us as believers with his Holy Spirit? So that we might be witnesses. And specifically, again, of the resurrection. A key part of our witness to those that we share our faith with is the fact that our God is alive and well. Jesus is risen from the dead. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior who is able then to impart life to us. 
You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so here we are today, 2,000 years later, and we're pretty far away from Jerusalem, aren't we, in Judea. But we have that responsibility of proclamation as well. And then, after proclamation, comes persuasion. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And I'm telling you, folks, we're living in a time now, quite possibly the worst time in 2,000 years in terms of people having not heard the gospel. We've got generations of young people growing up now who don't even know who Jesus is. Because our country is now in a post-Christian state. Our nation as a whole has rejected God. Many of us, when we were young, attended Sunday school, vacation Bible school. Uh, the Ten Commandments were still hanging in our courtrooms. The Gideons were still allowed to hand out Bibles on our school campuses. Many, many things that have gone by the wayside where we now have generation after generation of young people growing up with no exposure to God or His Word whatsoever. And yet we have a responsibility to proclaim and to persuade. How shall they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't just mean me, folks. That means every believer. Do you know that? Every believer is called to be a preacher, to share the good news with those around them. But so many of us are afraid of being looked upon as some kind of Bible thumper, right? Some kind of proselytizer, some kind of dogmatic, legalistic extremist. That last song we sang this morning, um, Jesus is Lord of All, that was written by the late, great Keith Green. And uh, Keith was pretty, pretty hardcore, man. And one of the statements that he made many years ago was um, a fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Think about that one. A fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. So from your perspective, they seem like a fanatic. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing... Now, yes, God can reach anybody, anytime, anywhere. Multitudes of people have somehow gotten a hold of a copy of the scriptures. They've sat down and they began to read and actually wind up getting saved. But the truth of the matter, I believe, is the majority of people come to faith in Christ because they've heard somebody talking about it. They've heard a preacher. They've heard a teacher. They've just heard some believer sharing their faith. Faith comes by hearing. And again, not just any old message. We talked about the, the low percentage of pastors today that have a biblical worldview. Notice, faith comes by hearing, and hearing how? By the Word of God. It's not your words, it's not my words, it's God's words that have the power to save. And yet, sometimes we're tempted to kind of try to sell people on God, right? Tell them about all the perks and the benefits. Which, honestly, in this life, that's not a big selling point. Because Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. 
So, but sometimes believers, they want to win people over. It's a good motive. It's a good reason behind it. But it's kind of like the old movie with Goldie Hawn, Private Benjamin. If you ever saw that movie. She was widowed on her wedding night. Uh, she's a young, pampered Jewish princess. And she goes to the recruiting station. She is so despondent, so depressed, so downcast after this being widowed on her wedding night, she goes to the army recruiter and he begins to show her the condos in the Mediterranean where she will get to live and the wonderful cuisine and the dining hall. And he just sells her, sells her, sells her and she signs up for the military. The next thing you know, she's out there marching in the rain, stomping in the mud and she wants to leave. We should not do that. We should not try to sell people on God. We simply need to tell them the truth. We need to share the scriptures with them that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest, right? We proclaim and by persuasion, again, we don't mean selling people on God, persuading them by simply telling them the truth. Our job is to persuasively but sincerely proclaim the gospel of Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is bringing conviction, which produces confession. And it's interesting because although this book, Revelation, we could rightly say was written for the churches. Starts off with the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. It's probably the most evangelistic book in the whole Bible. So, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Remember this, Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase is used eight times in Revelation. Let him who hears say, come. So let those who are convicted, convinced, and converted by this book. And so interestingly, again, we have the promise of a special blessing for those who read it, hear it, and keep it. There's also this idea that this book of all books can result in bringing someone to faith in Christ. I've shared my testimony how at around 16 years of age, I wasn't walking with the Lord. I was a believer. I'd been a believer since I was a small child. God started getting my attention, and the way he did that was by reading scriptures having to do with the end times, the last days. And I began to realize I'm not ready for this. I need to get ready. I need to get right. So let those who are convicted, convinced, and converted by this book spread the word. Jesus is coming soon. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. He loves you and wants you to live forever with him in his beautiful heavenly city. That's our message. And then it says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Again, we're reminded that Jesus offers to all who will come to him the water of life, the living water, eternal life, purchased on the cross with his shed blood. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be filled. When you hunger and thirst for the things of this world, you never get filled, you know that? That's why people overdose on drugs. That's why people die of alcoholism. That's why people contract deadly sexually transmitted diseases. That's why people die in fiery high-speed car crashes. Well, the list could go on and on, right? The things that will kill you in this world, in this life, because the desires of the flesh will never be satiated. You'll never be full. Have you ever wondered, why does somebody who has a million dollars try to get two or three? Or why does somebody have 10, 20, 30? A million's not enough, you've got to have a billion. Have you ever wondered, like, why don't they just retire? You know? Because it's never enough. It's never, ever enough. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise of God is you will be filled. You will be filled. John 4.14 Jesus tells the woman at the well, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's interesting that theoretically you can live up to 40 days without food. Remember Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights? But they say you can really only survive for about three days without water. And so God speaks of his living water, the river of life which will be flowing down the city down the street of the city of the New Jerusalem. By the way, this is not just a New Testament doctrine. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. How do you do that if you have no money? Because God paid the price. Jesus paid the price. You come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Again, on temporary things, the things of this life, the things of this world. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, the word of God. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna come down from heaven. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And see, that's where we so often get things confused and mixed up and wrong. Your soul shall live. Where we get focused on the temporary, the material, the physical. See, we're created in the image of God. We've talked about this so many times. This flesh is not me. Your flesh is not you. It's the spirit within you created in the image of God. And so God's number one concern is about your spirit, your soul, the eternal being inside of you that will either live forever with him or die forever apart from him. And so the enemy would love to get us totally distracted and focused on the temporary things, the things of this life, the things of this world that in, the, in light of eternity mean very little, if anything at all. We have to function here. We have to live here. We're placed here by God, but always keeping our eyes on eternity. Here's a quote. I don't remember where I got it, but it's a good one. Even in a book, this is about Revelation, even in a book weighted with awesome judgments, the merciful and loving heart of God manifests itself in this concluding invitation 
to lost men. We go on. Let him take the gift of the water of life freely. This is God's extravaganza, someone said. He's footing the bill. Why? Because the father of the bride always pays for the wedding. Right? He's our father, we're the bride. He's inviting us. Take the gift of the water of life freely. And again, it's not just H2O. It's that spiritual water that leads to eternal life. Again, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Again, because he paid the price. All right, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Earlier, as I mentioned, God promised a blessing for the one who hears these words and keeps them. Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads one. So that starts with literally, physically, reading the words. But then to hear the words, let him who has ears to hear, spiritual ears, asking God to give us insight, spiritual insight and understanding of the words, as we've been doing for the past two years. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Keep them. Hang on to them. Hold on to them. Don't reject them as many have done. We've talked about this so many times as well, how people say, oh, we don't study the book of Revelation in this church. In fact, we don't think it should even be in the Bible. Have you heard that one? It's too confusing. It's too divisive. Nobody understands what it means. It's weird. No, we, you know, we don't read that book. We don't study that book. And yet, only book in the Bible with this kind of a promise. For those who read it, hear it, and keep it. Keep it means you don't throw it out, you don't toss it out, you don't ignore it, and you proclaim it, you share it. Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How many times does he have to say it? But now that we have the warning for those who would tamper with God's word, similar to ones that were issued by God in the Old Testament. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I command you. Folks, there's a whole lot of that going on today. Do you know that? People adding, modifying, gender neutralizing, right? Taking out what they don't like, putting in what they do like. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. They even try to say, well, when the Bible sounds like it's condemning homosexuality, that's not really true. It's condemning promiscuity. It's okay as long as you are a monogamous relationship. By the way, David and Jonathan were gay. By the way, Jesus and John the Apostle were gay. That's the kind of stuff they're telling people today, folks. And people are buying into it and believing it. But I think we have a warning about that here, don't we? Don't we have a warning about that? You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Notice the word command twice and the word commandment once. 
Again, strong emphasis. A command is not a suggestion. Somebody once joked about, uh, I think it had to do with Bill Clinton, and saying that he, took, he believed the Ten Commandments were just the Ten Suggestions. I think that's who it was. Deuteronomy 12.32, Whatever I command you, be careful, careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Jesus said, Not one dotted I or cross T will pass away from my word. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure, even the parts you don't like. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. How many of you like the idea of having a shield? Having God be your shield. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. And notice this. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Folks, virtually every cult group on the planet has added to are taken away from the revealed Word of God. Do you realize that? Which was given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the writers of the Old and New Testaments. Please, please know this and make it known to those you love and even those you don't. You should not go near any of these groups with a 10-foot gold measuring rod. Remember the 10-foot gold measuring rod for the measuring the city, New Jerusalem? If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. How many of you remember the plagues we've studied in this book? How would you like to have those added to you? If you've been with us through most of this study, then you know how horrible this curse is. I guess we could say when it comes to these types of things, people just don't know who they're messing with. They're messing with the creator of all things, the master of the universe. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, the Lord of hosts. Verse 19, if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, you think God's really concerned about this? Yeah, I think so. Quite an emphasis here in this final passage. God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Again, if you've been with us as we've studied these last few chapters, then you know how wonderful and incredible the blessings will be for those who follow God. Which includes, following God includes not messing with his book. Do we get that? How does anybody in their right mind have the gall to mess with God's holy word? And yet they do it all the time. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, my pastor of many years, the founder of Calvary Chapel, the original Calvary Chapel, if you will. Somebody referred to it as the original recipe. I tell you, KFC is not what it once was. I remember way back my first taste of KFC, probably mid-high high school, 
They used to make it in a pressure cooker. Do you remember that? Man, that stuff was good. That was so good. I don't know how they cook it now, but it's not very good anymore. You know, I want the original recipe. And when it comes to the values, the doctrines, those things handed down to us by our founding father, Chuck Smith, I want the original recipe. I don't want any modern, messed up, fabricated, synthetic version of Calvary Chapel. I want the real deal. And we have it here, folks. This is the real deal. But like every other movement, sooner or later people began to drift away and it's already happening. But I have some good news for you. As long as I'm drawing breath, that will not happen here. Okay? Those who knowingly, willingly, intentionally alter God's word to deceive or out of their own deception will have no part in the blessings and promises of God. They will be lost forever. Let's make no bones about it. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, so we know who this is. It's Jesus. I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. By the way, this is the third time in this chapter that Jesus makes this promise. I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. And again, as we've talked about, there's no problem here. People mock, people scoff. Well, it's been 2,000 years. I don't think he's coming, guys. It means quickly. When all these things begin to unfold, they will happen very quickly in rapid succession. And from the beginning of the tribulation to the end, seven years... And then he comes back with us to establish his kingdom on the earth. Revelation 3.11 Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Again, the crown has to do with reward. We can be sucked in by the things of this world. We can be sucked in by many things. And we run the risk of losing any rewards that we might have in God's eternal kingdom. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the truth. Don't give it up. Don't compromise. Don't back down for anybody or anything. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Excited by the prospect of Jesus coming soon, John the Apostle here chimes in with a hearty amen. Come Lord Jesus. The Greek is Maranatha. A prayer common in early Christianity. Come on Lord, I'm ready. A guy by the name of Alexander McLaren said, The primitive church, the early church, thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground, like a grave, called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, check this out. Paul tells us in Thessalonians a great deception is coming upon the people of this world because they refused the love of the truth. There are people who know the truth, but they don't love it. They don't want it. They want their own truth. They want their own way. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to love it. And here... 
If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed. Let me read that again, the first translation being the New King James. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. That's the Maranatha. And the King James, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, accursed, Maranatha. So for everyone who refuses to love Jesus Christ, you can believe that he's real. I guess you could even believe that he rose from the dead, but if you don't love him, it does you no good. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He died on the cross for us. He laid it all down for us. Jesus warned that in the last days, because of the increase of wickedness, of evil, of lawlessness, boy, if we aren't living in a time of lawlessness, I don't know who is. Have you noticed? Even the people who make the laws don't obey them anymore. Because they're not for them, they're for you, they're for everybody else. Right? But if you know what, if you have the right persuasion, then you're allowed to break the law. If you're an atheistic, godless, secular, humanistic, Lying dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> oh, who said that? <laughs> that was one of his more lucid moments, by the way. Yeah. You're allowed to break the law, but if you are a God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, conservative Christian, not only are you not allowed to break the law, they will find a law that you've broken. Yes. Whether you've broken one or not. Okay? If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Paul lays it out plainly. We definitely have the message of love in the Bible, don't we? The message of grace. Of God's love, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. But if you reject it, if you refuse it, then you will be cursed. And again, God tells you the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't cover it over it. He doesn't try to sell you something that isn't there, that isn't real. He gives you the truth. You have the promise of eternal life in paradise. Anything and everything beyond your wildest imagination, and it's all free. All you have to do is receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you don't, if you don't love him, well, there's no plan B or plan C, folks. You will be accursed for all eternity. And it's that simple. It's no more complicated than that. But the devil will try to tie you into knots trying to explain your way out of it and you can't do it. Finally, verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Or as one translation says, be with God's people. And that's very important. Because even... When Christ was born and the angels came down and alerted the shepherds and they were all glory to God in the highest peace on earth, good will towards men who are in line with God, who are in tune with God. It, it's not for everybody. It's only for those who acknowledge him, for those who know him, for those who love him. 
The word grace, folks, is used 123 times in the New Testament. So, Pastor Chuck, in his commentary on the book of Romans, it's titled, The Gospel According to Grace. And in the book of James, it says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Sadly, people view God as some big omnipotent ogre in the sky getting ready to crush you with his thumb. No, above all, he's a God of grace, of love, of mercy, of forgiveness. The ball's in your court. Grace is God's unmerited or undeserved favor. I, kind of, I shared this with you guys a week or two ago. I said, you know, sometimes when I go to prayer and I'm thanking God for all the blessings, I'm kind of embarrassed because I know I don't deserve them. But he's blessed me so much, and I have to thank him again and again. But it's kind of embarrassing, because I don't deserve those blessings. It's God's unmerited favor, undeserved. And the New Testament writers repeatedly opened and closed their letters with this word. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I would say that there's probably no other portion of Scripture that gives a sharper contrast between the blessed condition of the saints of God and the fearful future awaiting those who are lost than this book of Revelation. Certainly no other book of the Bible is more explicit in its description of judgment on the one hand and the saints eternal bliss on the other. And so John closes this book, the last book, with a final blessing, grace, not with a curse. This is God's final word to his people. The question is, are you one of his people? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I think the most important question that we can ever ask someone or that we can ever be asked ourselves is, do you love the Lord? What is your answer? Is that your final answer? I hope it's the right answer. Let's stand. And thus concludes the book of Revelation. We made it. I was kind of hoping we'd get raptured before we finished, but that's, that's okay. Let's bow our heads, and I'm going to ask anyone who has a prayer request if you'd raise your hand this morning, please. Quite a few all over the sanctuary. Father, you see each one. You know each one. You see those hands. You know what's on each heart and each mind. Father, we lift up all these prayer requests to you this morning. First of all, we thank you for the many answered prayers that we've all experienced in our lives. We acknowledge that, God, that you're a good God. You're a loving Heavenly Father. We've talked about your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We thank you, and Lord, we lift up now any health issues that are represented here today. Lord, but again, you are the God who heals us. You're our healer. You're the great physician. Nothing is too difficult for you, Lord. We lift up every health issue from allergies and asthma and COPD and cancer, leukemia, whatever it might be, Father. Lord, nothing is too big for you. Nothing is too hard for you. We do pray for healing, arthritis, Father, so many afflictions, and it's all part of the curse of sin. We recognize that. It's not your fault. It's not from you. It's a result of the sinful state that we find ourselves in. But we thank you that you do love us, you do care, and we know that you do heal. Lord, it's not always the way we'd like it to be or in the time frame that we'd like. 
And Lord Job said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. So Lord, we don't, uh, we don't uh, make our love for you conditional upon whether or not you heal us, but we do call out in Jesus' name for healing, Father, for your precious saints. We pray for mental and emotional issues as well, for depression, for anxiety, for fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, guilt, shame. Lord, we ask that you would wash us and cleanse us, cleanse our hearts and minds, renew a right spirit within us, and impart to us the mind of Christ, just like you said you would, Lord. We pray for healing from these mental, emotional issues that we struggle with. Lord, we pray also for relationships that have been damaged or broken, that you'd bring healing whenever possible. Help us to be purveyors of peace and reconciliation. And we ask that you could enable us to forgive when we need to forgive and to ask forgiveness when we need to ask for it. And that as many broken relationships as possible could be healed, restored, including marriages, friendships, work-related situations, neighborhood. Lord, you want us to be at peace with all men as much as possible, as much as it lies within us. So help us to do our part. We do pray for healing of relationships, Father, because they're so important here on this planet. We are not an island unto ourselves. We're all interconnected in one way or another, and we pray for healing of those relationships. Finally, we pray for resources, Lord, for finances. We're living in difficult times. Everything's getting more expensive. Lord, it's getting harder and harder for people just to afford the basics of life. We pray for your provision. We acknowledge you as our provider. That you take care of us. You said, Lord, if we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things would be added unto us. So we trust you. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for your word and thank you for a great time we've had over the last couple of years in the book of Revelation. Lord, we ask you to receive now our final offering of praise and worship this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.